Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name is Charlie Beale and I'm joined as ever by my excellent friend in Sheffield, Mr. Thomas Goodfellow. Good evening, everybody. Very delightful to be back. <laughs> we have left it a little while this time, haven't we, Tom? It feels like an age, but it, I mean, it's not been that long, actually, since our last one. But uh, time is playing havoc with us at the moment, isn't it? It's nice to return to the certainty of a single voice. Usually yes. accompanied by a guitar or a piano, singing simple melodies. Singer-songwriters is our theme tonight. Well, I should say some of my choices are not really all that simple or simply a single voice. And But anyway, um, they are singer-songwriters and they are hopefully going to take us to another dimension. They certainly will. You, I suppose, are the singer-songwriter of the bands I was in, uh, in the sense that you didn't sing well, in the band, no, but you, you you wrote and sung the songs that many of many of uh, the songs that we played. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself in this bracket. That that what defines a singer songwriter is usually someone who just pens songs. In they're usually quite prolific, aren't they, singer songwriters? Yeah. So really, it's I, I always found it to be quite a strange term, and I don't mm. really know who we should classify the singer songwriter because obviously, if it's anyone who um, writes the songs that they sing and isn't really in a band, then it's it's pretty wide open. But it seems to have this connotation of, yeah, certainly an association with people sitting, playing a guitar or maybe a piano, them and their instrument. And somehow it normally doesn't apply to pop stars. You know what I mean? Even if they mm. write their own music, they don't get talked about so much in that way. Uh, although I think we're going to maybe transgress some of these boundaries today. But yeah, I guess it's the, the all-round composer, lyricist, musician, kind of aficionado in control, in total control of their own <laughs> output. We had a, a debate before the, the episode about whether people who have a backing band count as singer-songwriters. I think we decided that we'd include those people. Um, but, yeah. you know, there is a, it's, it's, it's a very fluid boundary. I don't think there's strict definitions here. I mean, there's also people who, have a, who say they have a backing band but they don't really have a backing band as much as some people who don't flag their backing band, right? And there are a lot of artists who, for periods of time, have a backing band associated with them and then don't. So I think, in yeah, I, uh, the original idea was let's keep those people with the backing bands that are kind of part of their identity for another episode, but it's actually really hard to do. So I have tried to go for artists, uh, choose songs in the periods where they weren't associated with particular backing bands. We have also made a few exclusions, haven't we? Um, there are certain artists who are so good they deserve their own episodes, and so we've excluded them from the choices this evening. And yeah, and not the other rule was we didn't want to play anyone we'd already played, right? Correct. So for one of them, and I think I mean there are certainly people here who could merit an episode of their own, but I think um, yeah, there are certain people, certain biggies that you might expect in this list who won't be there for that reason. Right, we've got five songs each, so let's uh, crack on. My first one immediately creates issues because um, I I picked a song and then I realised that the, the, the person who I think of as a singer-songwriter was actually singing a cover, which just defeats the episode and you couldn't open up with that. So I, I then looked to who the cover was by uh, originally. So my first choice is by Jerry Jeff Walker, who wrote a song called Mr. Bojangles. 
Bojangles and he danced for you And worn out shoes With silver hair and ragged shirt and baggy pants The old soft shoes He jumped so high, he jumped so high He lightly touched down Now I'm going to interrupt it quite early and you'll, you'll understand why because uh, I didn't choose this song because of this version although I quite like it because it reminds me of demos that we did there's uh, this bad mic technique and um, mistakes and uh, and all sorts but it's, it's it feels really real like a really good demo um, so Jerry uh, Jeff Walker wrote this about a time he spent in jail in New Orleans while he was drunk in 1965 and met this homeless guy uh, who called himself Mr. Bojangles because he didn't want to be discovered by the police and it, in this kind of one overnight session in the New Orleans jail um, there were a bunch of characters and Mr. Bojangles did a dance and he had all the things in this but um, the reason I chose this was not because of the story, but because uh, for some reason this is this song has become part of the canon of singer-songwriting. Um, and the reason I I knew it is because I I wanted to play Nina Simone's version, which if you'll forgive me... Play it, me, play it, play it! I knew a man <laughs> Bojangles and he danced for you With silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants. The old soft shoes. He jumped so high, jumped so high. Then he lightly touched the down. I met him in a cell in New Orleans, I was down now. He looked at me to be the eyes of age as he spoke right out. to unpack this song you realize that it's a standard that singer-songwriters turn to um, and have done so for years so check this one out
I knew a man would jangles any dance for you. In one out shoes. So this is Bob Dylan. Silver hair, ragged shirt, and baggy pants. That old soft shoe. It jumped so it's, high. It's weird of Bob to cover this because it's. It sort Almost of could like, be a Bob Dylan song. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when he's singing it. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, yeah. so a bit more jaunty, jaunty with a whistle in there. This sounds like a, a contemporary advert for like, a, I don't know, like a new mobile phone service. <laughs> a newer man. Yeah, he rescues it with the vocal a bit, but the whistling was mm. a B&Q advert or something, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah, it's true, it is a bit being the wrong product there. Um, yeah, interesting. I think Nina's definitely rules. Uh, well, hang on, I haven't even finished. Oh, sorry. This is uh, George Burns. Man Bojangles and he dance for you In one out shoes Silver hair and raggy shirt and baggy pants The old This is Harry Not Nilsson convinced. Please don't play Robbie Williams I think it's the Robbie Williams version I knew a man Yeah, I'm not going to play Robbie dance for you One out shoes Silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants. The old soft shoe jumps so high, jumps so high. This is John Denver. I'm definitely not mixing this. Jangles and he dance for you in worn out shoes, silver hair, ragged shirt, and baggy pants. The old soft shoe, he jumps so high, he jumps so high, and it lightly touched down. This is Neil Diamond. I mean, <laughs> it really is never ending. Only one more after this. New man Bojangles and he dance for you. And worn out shoes. Silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants. They wore soft shoes. So it's good to get to this chord change here. Yeah, you have to get to the next chord change. Have I been ending them too soon? No, no, needs to get to the the Bojangles bit. Ooh. Oh, it doesn't come for a while. We don't have the time. All we've got now is time for this one. 
I'm Lulu. Lulu. I like the way Lulu pops up in our podcast, like, just in random ways. Like, her alleged affair with David Bowie or whoever it was. He jumped so high, jumped so high, then he'd lightly touch down. Mr. Bojangles. So we get the we get the picture here. The reason I um I and I hope you forgive the slight self indulgent um departure from our normal episode format. Oh, yeah. But the reason I did it was because it's um sometimes the singer songwriter format is about like how you come to songwriting and singing, uh, and often it's by learning these kind of um these standards. So you can imagine someone learning acoustic guitar and and. Mr. Bojangles being one of those kind of like it's got quite a, a distinctive descending bass part uh, and oh yeah good chord pattern but yeah I wonder so you're talking about the people who are playing Mr. Bojangles crafting developing their craft as singer songwriters right well if you look at all the people who who I, I said were who are um, doing covers of it it's Bob yeah. Dylan, Neil Diamond. They're all singer-songwriters in their yeah, own yeah. right. Yeah, um, yeah, true. Yeah, it's just it's irony is that if you write a song like this, the original guy who maybe thought of himself as a singer-songwriter, in retrospect, historically, just looks like a songwriter because <laughs> no one knows his version, right? Because I mean, it's interesting. We'll come to some people later on where you're like, you're not necessarily thinking of them as singer-songwriters because other people's versions, because they're such good songwriters that everyone just wants to sing their songs, and so the you know the singer side of them gets submerged I mean, and then Nina Simone is like the opposite I mean, I'm glad you played it obviously in a way this should have been in a, a covers week because I can't believe we didn't play Nina Simone that week because she's done so many covers and so many great covers yeah and hers does kind of stand above the others it's something about how it's her voice it suits she has so many different versions of her voice and, and that one is lovely and it seems so, like a lot of people were influenced by her version yeah, that's the one I wanted to put, and and so this was actually a last-minute detour um, in my planning, and um, the way I justified it was because it was it was a great song that yeah. many many singer-songwriters have approached. Um, Absolutely, no, it's a great call. It's a good one to start with. I'd say it's uh, we've heard loads of singer-songwriters already. So why don't we go on to your first choice, Tom? Right. So staying in a yeah, I think Nina Simone released that her version of that song around 1970 or 71 or something. And uh, that's exactly where we're at right now um, in my next track, which um, is from something like 1970, 69. And this is, this is Neil Young. So Neil Young is one of these singer-songwriters who did play with the band for a long time. In fact, I think he'd already done some albums with Crazy Horse before this album, which is after The Gold Rush, um, which I think is kind of more of a solo album, which is partly how I justified it. Although on this track, he's with a band. I don't know if it's Crazy Horse members or not. But Neil Young is like one of these people who I came across through the people he influenced. So in the 90s, people used to talk about him as the godfather of grunge. And he would get up and play with Pearl Jam and they covered some of his like later songs from the 80s. And so I thought, well, I should discover more about Neil Young because I didn't really know him before that. I've borrowed a copy of After the Gold Rush from someone. And I was like, what, this, how is he the godfather of grunge? You know, it's just this dude mm -hmm. singing in a really whiny voice. But um, of course, he also 
there's something about the growl of the guitars in in the stuff where he he is playing electronically and i don't know i do find him quite captivating and i got quite into it i've chosen to play this track because partly because of that because of the way it i think influenced a lot of people sonically and i just mm. love the sound of the guitars and the kind of anger of the music like it's not fast and loud but the, the song is angry and you can hear it in the music but we can talk a little bit more about this song perhaps in the middle and there's an extremely long guitar solo which we may not want to hear all of So I think this um, this guitar solo goes on for a while, uh, but keep the track playing in the background because there's several things about the composition of this track that I really love. Um, and it's quite a kind of radical structure. Um, I mean, we'll get to the subject matter of the song in a minute, but the fact it sort of seems to start with a chorus, then it goes into this kind of verse, then it goes into like a two minute guitar solo, and then it goes chorus, verse again, and then just kind of ends. And the way, yeah, I don't know, the, the, these kind of huge three-part harmonies, which actually Neil Young did a lot of. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a challenging and surprising in the way the song unfolds. The, the lead vocal is quite overdriven, which I love. Um, yeah. His guitar playing is also quite loose, and it's almost as if the, the drums are being played on... You know those people who busk and they've got like a, a suitcase as the bass drum and uh, yeah. you know, a, a plastic kind of pot as the snare? Um, it's, uh, it feels like it's one of those drum kits that's being played, but the harmonies are so beautiful. And, of course, Neil Young went on... I mean, did obviously stuff with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Should we go back to the song? Let's have this bit, yeah. Good book says Southern change from the 
I love the, how 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 long they hold that chord for as well. It's it's just very powerful, and of course it's an angry song about racism in the South. Um, the lyrics are so evocative. So in those verses where it's just yeah, it's just so angry. As you say, it's overdriven. He says in the first one something about tall white mansions and little shacks. It's, it's really evocative of like plantation, you know, just in these very few lines. And um, there's an interesting story about this song as well. He he wrote another song on the following album, um, Harvest, which is also a great album called Alabama. And that was also about the Deep South. And then the song Sweet Home Alabama by... Um, Leonard Skinner. Yeah, Leonard Skinner. Yeah. was a response to these songs. So I feel this is very contemporary as well. Obviously, like he, he managed to offend like the South mm. by talking about a stereotypical kind of racist South with all its legacies. And therefore, they kind of sort of wrote a song celebrating yeah, themselves. Leonard Skinner's line was, as uh, if I recall, is uh, Neil Young must remember a southern man doesn't want doesn't want you around in, anyhow or doesn't want yeah, you around. Yeah. Any, it feels um, almost like Brexit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 so true. Um, but this is, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll come on, I guess, to the nature of, of processed singing. Uh, and, and yeah, there's. I feel like when I when I understood that story, it made me think less of Leonard Skinner. Yeah, think. and Neil Neil Young was quite big about it because apparently he never he was always like uh, it's a great song, Sweet Home Alabama. And I think they said that they were responding more to the song Alabama than Southern Man. But then they they referenced Southern Man loads of times. Um, I'm not as familiar with Alabama. I know it, but I can't remember the lyrics. But yeah, I mean Leonard Skinner, it's like you know also take on board what he's trying to say here rather than just yeah. saying Alabama's great. Yeah. yeah, I think um, in a similar way to where I come from, uh, you can you can have an appreciation, for example, of Africana uh, culture without loving apartheid. Um, yes. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that yeah, you need to make that clear in your response. Um, and Sweet Home Alabama is very much about lifestyle and you know country values, and that's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting the way that dispute played out in a way with the people talking past each other. Um, but anyway, let's move on. Uh, we could talk about, I could talk about Neil Young for a while, but we've got a lot of songs to get. Through. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you chose Neil Young, though, because he is brilliant. He's got such a distinctive voice. Uh, the, the point I was trying to make before we, we went back into the song was that you, he played, obviously, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and in various incarnations, but he felt like whenever he was around, he was writing the songs and they were just uh, lending instrumentation and, and, and vocals. Yeah. And I mean, he's an incredibly like gratifying singer songwriter to engage with as a, just a guitarist, right. And as, as, as somebody trying to sing, uh, sing, write and sing songs yourself, because even though his voice is distinctive, it's not, you know, it's not classically brilliant. You just kind of bash it out. And um, the songs are really simple. The guitar parts are simple. There's, there's no fancy finger work, but they're actually just great tunes and melodies. So yeah, good, good stuff there, Neil. <laughs> still so going, I'm still rocking. I'm staying in the American songbook here, um, and I'm choosing someone who I think I discovered maybe ten years ago I knew of but I, I didn't understand her brilliance until about 10 years ago when I 
I, I, I watched a documentary. I'm talking about Carol King here, who I knew through the album Tapestry and other work. But what I, did, what I hadn't understood at that point was that she and her husband, Jerry Goffin, were songwriters for hire prior to her becoming a, a recording artist. And she has penned some of the classic songs. Amazing. Um, she's just a, a great songwriter. Um, yeah, I, I think I saw that documentary. Is that the one where at the end she's in the audience when Aretha's singing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman with the Obamas at that event? And it's <laughs> fucking amazing. And she's in the audience going, yeah. Yeah, she's obviously uh, not active now. I think she's more an environmental uh, environmental activist of some kind and uh, doesn't perform. But uh, in her early days, you know, Will You Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. You go back and listen to that. I don't know the Shirelles work, but you know that song when you listen to it and the, the sound is so brilliant. Uh, I'm Into Something Good by the Herman's, Her- Herman's oh, Herbits. Amazing, amazing. Uh, awesome. It's a basic, like a, it's an equivalent of a, a Beach Boys number. Um, the Locomotion, which she wrote for Little Eva and then became a Kylie hit. Um, Take Good Care of My Baby, which is a hit for Bobby V. Uh, you mentioned the Aretha Franklin one. Um, James Taylor's You've Got a Friend. Um, and then what we we, we can't forget, uh, Martika's version of um, I Feel the Earth Move. <laughs> I forgot that was karaoke. Martika. <laughs> Where's Martika now? Uh, she's somewhere having a party with Maria McKee. Um, anyway. Yeah, and Wendy James from Transition Band. <laughs> yeah. So cool. um, I'm actually just going to pick one off uh, off Tapestry because it is, after all, singer songwriter week. And um, uh, this is So Far Away. So far away Doesn't anybody stay so far away and there's a, a huge canon of work that you can go and explore of, of Carol King's. The reason I chose that one is because I think uh, it speaks to the wider theme of great singer-songwriters and what they're able to do uh, in identifying a particular thing. Like this song is about 
being um, in a long distance relationship or it's too late is about you know a, a relationship that's gone beyond its its, 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 its lifetime and I think song, singer-songwriters can, can put you in a moment and but they very often identify universal human moments that we all have and just say like oh, this is about yeah, that thing I you're right really feel that and I think it's when you think about her songs you're like the ones that I know they are like archetypal pop songs like they're, they're, they're more than just sort of stories or vignettes they're like capture a whole something you know a, a, a dilemma or a, something some fundamental experience in life and I think as well that that's that is what great singer-songwriters do right? bands can get away with writing songs that aren't necessarily about anything <laughs> it's quite interesting and I I remember this from being in a band and writing songs and just thinking like, oh, you know, these lyrics just kind of mean something to me. But if someone says, what's that song about? It's quite hard to explain. And, I, I, and that's just not really very satisfactory, but you can sort of pull it off with the dynamic of a band. But if you're a singer-songwriter and you're there and you're playing that song on your own, you can't really say, I can't tell you what this song is about or I don't know what it's about. It has to be about something. And making a song that's about something and conveys it very well is really fucking hard. You know, it's a great art. Because I guess the art of the singer-songwriter is you have to produce songs that can be played, even if they're not played on just a guitar or a piano, but they, they can be played on a guitar and a piano. And so yes. they have to almost be self-circumscribed. Um, like, uh, they need to belong in their own thing. They don't need to like have a syncopated thing between the bass and the sax or you know, no. you know, multi-instrumentation moments. Exactly. They just need to be really kind of great songs and uh, I guess that's why so often they're covered right because mm. singer-songwriter songs tend to be covered much more than songs by bands um, which are all about the dynamic of those four people or five people or whatever as much as about the song so I urge you all to go and um, look up the back catalogue of Carol King but uh, let's I mean, move on well, yeah let's move on. do you have, a, do you have no, something no, I was just gonna say it's sad the, the only sad thing is that somebody that talented clearly as a singer as well it doesn't really get remembered as a singer because their songs are so good that they get covered by people whose versions outshine their own. So to me, Carole King is sort of a songwriter. Like I wouldn't necessarily know that she's also a great singer because, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it depends when you came to discover her music because if in 1971, uh, Tapestry was in everyone's record collection oh, yeah. and it sold 25 million copies you would have you would have thought of carol king as tapestry yeah, and you probably true. wouldn't have known what she had been doing with all the others so that's I interesting that you you remind me now of when we when i watched that documentary is that they were talking about this album and i was like i don't know this album i mean tapestry it's not like famous like fleetwood mac albums or something are now i mean that's weird it's almost been eclipsed to me yeah. uh, as, you know i mean if, if, if i spoke to my mum she would say Carol King's tapestry was like what yeah. like thriller of her her era. It's interesting. So, so, so I might be wrong. It might just be me, but it doesn't seem to have, you know, come down. Uh, it's it's odd. Things could be that big at the time, and then and then. Um, I suppose it's just things. Yeah, bands get kind of remade, fashionable again, and her songs have been remade, fashionable by other people rather than people necessarily picking up. Album. Anyway, but I think it wasn't a groundbreaking sound either. It wasn't. It was just like a series of nice songs, and therefore you may bracket it alongside a Nora Jones or a kind the sort of, of Carpenters you know, as well. It sounds a bit car, yeah, who are also great in their way. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Where are we? Uh, it's me. I think what we have now is Nick Drake. And this yep. is one that... Um, okay, so it's another artist that I didn't come to particularly early. And quite an interesting way that I came to this artist. Uh, I think, in a way, this is the archetypal sort of singer-songwriter setup, right? Where mm. um, you, it's a man on his guitar. And then in, in, in some of one of his albums in particular, there's quite a lot of other instrumentation. But it really is very much about him and his very introspective kind of writing. Uh, and I didn't know his work, but um, I once got very drunk with our good friend Jim, our bass player, <laughs> the night before, I think, the night before or the night after, the night after we went to see The Strokes. And it was around that time. We talked about this night, actually. And um, we stayed up writing kind of piss-take songs and recording them on a tape. Excuse me. Um, <coughs> and for some reason, I started singing a song on a guitar about civil war in Lebanon. <laughs> I think I was, I was doing a master's in international relations at the time with this course on the Middle East. I had this on my head. So I just started singing about the scorched fields of Lebanon uh, on an acoustic <laughs> guitar. And Jim was like, that's fucking Nick Drake. That's like Nick Drake. And I was like, I've never heard Nick Drake. Uh, and he was like, it's uncanny. So then I, I listened to some Nick Drake and I kind of saw what he meant. Um, I've chosen this song for a few reasons that Maybe we'll discuss more after. But this is from his second album, Brighter Later, which is the one I actually went and bought, even though it's the one least like the Scorched Fields of Lebanon. Um, and there's somewhat more instrumentation, including John Cale plays on this track. But uh, it's, it's a beautiful song. And the organs and the way they lift in, there's a sort of breakdown in the middle. And in, in a slow song, a ballad, it seems weird to talk about a breakdown. But it does break down and come up again. And it's just a, an amazing moment. Let's hear it. I never felt magic crazy this. I never saw moons, knew the meaning of the sea I never held emotion in the palm of my hand I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree But now you're here Bright in my northern sky
Would you let me for my money? Or would you love me for my head? Or would you love me through the winter? Or would you love me till I'm dead? Oh, if you would, don't you go? Come blow your Saw moons knew the meaning of the sea. I never held emotion in the palm of my hand. I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree, but now you're here, bright in my northern sky. sky yes so um i chose that partly because i think it's just, it's very simple but beautiful melody and more in a sense more of a a pop song than money many many of his songs and it's, it's simplicity you know two chords other instruments um but also <laughs> it has a certain resonance because as you will remember northern sky was the name of the record label <laughs> that we released our debut album certainly our debut single uh yeah. i can't really remember why so this was someone our manager nick moore knew who was really into nick drake right i believe the man's called lee henshaw and lee had an like a, a digital marketing agency uh and he also offered to put out our first i think single and yeah. northern sky and nick drake uh, what, what, Nick Drake was an artist he loved in Northern Sky. He wanted to call it Northern Sky Records. So yeah, that's it. Um, without knowing but, um, the song, I, I I feel quite fondly towards uh, Northern Sky just because it adorned all our first singles. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, like I say, it's off the second Nick Drake album. And I, I feel I have mixed feelings about Nick Drake. I mean, it, he's a he in some ways is clearly the epitome of the singer-songwriter, a certain kind of singer-songwriter. But in a way, he's so singular uh, and the the stuff is so personal and his sound is so unique and so personal that he's not somebody who lots of people cover. So very different from some of the kind of singer-songwriters we've been talking about. Um, and he obviously, you know, I read a little bit about him and, you know, he was very depressed. And I, I, I find it hard to listen to Pink Moon in some ways because that's so bare and so stark. That's the third album. Mm. And you can kind of hear how it's, it's, it's very bleak, really. It's, I can't quite bear it. But also he was obviously just, he spent a lot of time moping around being a bit like, I'm a, I'm a genius and it's just not been recognised. He didn't do very well in his lifetime. Mm. He actually trod in a lot of the places that we have been. He went to Cambridge and studied English. And then he, he went to Belsize Park and lived um, in that part of North London near where I grew up. Um, but he, yeah, I mean, he was obviously a very troubled man, but it also, he just, he sort of refused to play gigs. He got very huffy about, you know, people not recognizing his genius and 
I'm sort of torn between thinking like how awful, uh, you know, serious depression is and also just like, come on, <laughs> mm. come on, Nick, stop moving around. You don't expect everyone to love you straight away. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I know very little about him. That's a very superficial reading of Nick Drake's uh, life. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> um, I, no, no, it's not a superficial reading. I, but it is. You're right to say, though, that his songs are very much heaters. If we go back yes, to the covers, you don't, cover uh, yeah. you don't cover a Nick Drake song. You don't. Do so at your peril. Um, and also, it's not something you can turn into a different kind of song. If you did, it would be really wrong, right? Mm-hmm. You can't be like, I'm going to interpret this, you know, through the medium of grime. It just, yeah. You know. Yeah, I think it's a. he's a good artist to know and get into for a period of time. But yes, you will. Don't go too deep, otherwise you'll you'll get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's probably why I, I try to slightly um, I don't know. Yeah, not not really go there. Um, and uh, but yeah, a really enigmatic figure. I think that's part of. He was rediscovered by all these people in the eighties and nineties. Uh, but you know, there's no video footage of him. There's like there's very little out there about him because he played so little and he was such a recluse and mm. I guess it's a very very sad story but there's just part of me that thinks you never really you never really know I don't know mm. um so yeah that's Nick Drake he, he needed to be in there I think he was on your short list too hey or your long list he was I would have probably chosen way to blue just because I love the uh the um oh, the string string quartet yeah. in it and like it's not a brilliant song but I just think it's so dramatic the way the string quartet works um you're right. The strings, it's a shame that song didn't have strings in because he did some amazing stuff with strings. He is also a bit like Jeff Buckley and he re-emerged at a, at a similar time, late 90s, early 2000s, and you would get like the clever one at the party when everyone else was trying to have a good time would stick on that record. I think Jim was going like, uh, you know, Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah or Jeff Buckley's um, Is It Grace, the yeah. album. Someone would put it on and be like, oh, let's just get deep and meaningful. And um, Nick Drake takes that to the whole next level. Yeah. I mean, it is sad. I feel I feel bad now for for, for potentially maligning Nick Drake for for (laughs) being too full of himself. Because, I, you know, to have not to have not made it in your lifetime and and made this great art and then never known how much people were going to appreciate it later on. Yes, this is the nature of uh, where these people take themselves, though. Um, so yeah. we've, 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 we've spoken about it in all sorts of other genres. Um, we have. So if, I, uh, if I started with a great song in Mr. Bojangles and a great songwriter in Carol King, my next choice is... Um, it's actually more about a great sound. Um, so I'm choosing a song by James Taylor. Mm. You may or may not know. And I, I think I, I know of him, of course, but I don't know his work well, so I'm excited. Yeah, so he he was a beneficiary of Carol King in the sense that she wrote "You've Got a Friend," which I think has paid for quite a lot of James Taylor's uh, houses. Um, <laughs> but he, he he's also obviously got his own um, his own talent, and and this song "Carolina on My Mind" is one that I really love because. I think it encapsulates just beautiful singing, beautiful guitar playing. It's cross genre. It's a bit folk. It's a bit country. Uh, it's got lovely harmonies. He's got a really 
clear and lovely voice. Um, Let's have it. Let's have it. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Can't you just feel the moonshine? Ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Guess I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. Karen, she's a silver sun. You best walk her away and watch it shining. Watch her watch the morning come. A silver tear appearing now. I'm crying. picture um it's not going anywhere different after this there's a bit of repetition um but to me it's just got a lovely pure sound yeah and it's the voice is clear as a james bell i mean it really has that kind of cutting through yeah i, I just don't know his work at all he's incredibly famous and successful right but it's, it's amazing how you can get to this ripe old age and not have discovered the work of these people but the interesting thing is he was a singer-songwriter in New York um, and I think he got into drugs and then he came over to the UK to clean up a bit and in one of these serendipitous moments um, managed to uh, do a rehearsal or, or an audition for the Beatles because at the time the Beatles were um, so Apple Records was setting up and um, he, he did this audition in front of Paul McCartney and, um, and George Harrison uh, and played a bunch of songs and he was the first act that, that they signed and uh, I'm not sure if it's this recording but there is the first recording of this song it's actually Paul McCartney on bass and he's credited and um, George Harrison on BVs Wow Okay, I, I, first I misunderstood you there, because you said he did an audition for the Beatles. So he no, did not an for the Beatles. <laughs> I was like, well, he was going to be in the Beatles in 19... must have been very... Yeah, no, okay, so he auditioned to be uh, an artist for Apple. It's yes, an amazing story, though. Indeed. Yeah. So, he, so he came over here, and uh, I forget how the introduction was, but, you know, Apple Records were going to be signing artists. And, yeah. Uh, he really is sort of um, singer-songwriter royalty, isn't he? His associations with Carole King. Is he married to Carly Simon or something? Have I made that up? 
Um, interesting, interesting, because one of my later choices went out with Carrie, uh, Carly Simon. There you are. She's the Lulu of this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> McCartney remembers his first impression of hearing James Taylor. Um, this is my best Paul McCartney impression. I just heard his voice and his guitar and I thought he was great. And he came <laughs> and played live. So it was just like, wow, he's great. <laughs> That's so Paul McCartney. <laughs> but what is... Yeah, he's so disingenuous, isn't he, Maka? Like he, you know, like he can't. He, he talks like he can't. You know, write these incredible, incredibly lyrical uh, pieces of music. Um, they never really thought about it. You know, he puts on this kind of folksy. Anyway, let's not get distracted. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, Goodness. All right, where are we? Where are we? Okay, we're sort of moving forward in time, aren't we? Um, we could get stuck in the nineteen seventies forever frankly, but we're not gonna. Um, Kate Bush is my next choice, and I'm not going for the late 70s Kate Bush of Wuthering Heights, or whatever, or indeed um, mainstream, you know, breakthrough imperial period Kate Bush of Hound of Love, although I could happily have played some stuff off that album, but this is a track off The Sensual World from 1989, I think. It's the title track. And I had, I've had a few Kate Bush phases, but I mean, there's one particular time when I just got into Kate Bush and finally really got her, you know? And this is mm. uh, well within the last decade. Um, I think it was about five years ago that I got, I, I heard this album and I just, I just got a bit obsessed with this track. It, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's a complete change of tone from anything we've listened to so far. So throw out uh, all these ideas of someone sitting with their guitar. Um, this album, I don't even know the album that well, but the first track, I just listened to it again and again. It's a soundscape and it's inspired by James Joyce, Ulysses or something. You know, it's like Kate Bush at her best. It's kind of pretentious. But mm. it's, um, so she's talking about this character from the book who, who leaves the, 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 the story to enter the real world or something. But it's incredibly sensual. And um, I don't know, it just envelops you and I got quite obsessed with it. So it's, it's the track I wanted to play.
Okay, so as you can hear, there's all kinds of strange what do you call those? Flutes? Pipes? Kind of well, Irish instrumentation. Is, is, is it a bagpipe? Is it a clarinet? I or think is it's, it a... it's that what do I say in river dance? <laughs> it's some kind of it's kind of Irish bagpipe or something. I think that I've heard an interview with Kate Bush and she she had a brother or something or someone who had all these records and all this like traditional music you know Gaelic and what have you and, and she just kind of absorbed all of that and she put it into the song and it's just I just, just kind of be creative you know <laughs> all around and uh, you have to listen to it a few times I think before you get sucked in but I I did that um so I haven't I haven't gone down a Kate Bush wormhole and I know that it's like I don't know Hamlet or <laughs> Beckett, people who go in and go deep and they go hard. Um, how, how do you get into Kate Bush? <laughs> Possibly not by listening to this. Um, well, I, I don't know. I think you just you listen to a range of Kate Bush stuff and you see if it grabs you and it's not it's not for everyone. But when you said you, you, you at one point you said you got her, you, you understood. You, yeah, yeah, like something unlocked. Uh, something it did unlock and it was a combination of because you know I'm, I'm not wild about Wuthering Heights or those early ones and when she you know you just see her doing the same kind of crazy floaty dancing and and kind of the a similar sort of very theatrical s- sort of style of I mean clearly very kind of talented and creative even then but I think it's after about 1983 or something that she did stuff that I sort of thought I think I just listened to some more Kate Bush I'm not sure how or why and the Hounds of Love, you know, you'll know the big hits from that, obviously. Cloud Busting and Hounds of Love and Running Up That Hill, all of which are pretty amazing. Um, and I think I had an experience with Hounds of Love, which I hate to say it, but I, I didn't really know the song very well before the Future Heads cover version, mm. um, which we've discussed in a previous episode, which I think is a a travesty. I mean, I know people have said this about <laughs> our own cover versions, but I really like, well, I, I might even play that on a future episode because... I, I just was listening to it once and I got it. I was like, oh yeah, that's what this is a this is a love song and this is deliberately restrained musically um while saying something really powerful. Um yeah, and I and so I don't not, know and then not I not deserving of a bunch of um Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then I'll tell you what really got me into Kate Bush, and I nearly played it, is that she I just admire as well that she just she didn't release a lot of albums, she'd have huge gaps between them. Uh, particularly more recently. But then in 2011 or something, she reduced this, she released this album called The Director's Cut, where she went back to her own songs that she didn't like the recordings of, including that one, uh, because they were 280s or whatever, although I, that's part of what I love about it. And she re-recorded them. And in the case of that one, she'd been trying to get the rights to some actual text from Ulysses, and she didn't get it at the time. And then she got it later on, so she re-recorded it with those words. And she re-recorded a bunch of a back catalogue and there's some beautiful versions of songs on there that I do think are way better than the original. And that that hooked me in as well. So I think it's just somebody who's like in, just seems in, whether she is or not, in total control of their art and uh, not scared to just do what the fuck they want, you know? Mm. <laughs> Got to admire that. Well, that's that feels like you've given me a gift because I don't know uh, Kate Bush very well, but you've inspired me to go and have a good, I'll give you a around. few, a few tips. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, from someone who's got great depth. Oh, uh, before I move on, actually, there was a little bit in that song that reminded me of Yasasin 
um, yes, in Lodger song. Yes, and I think it's partly the the something of the eighties Bowie. I think there was some mutual influence going on there. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but before well, I move, yeah, like seventies Bowie. The um, there were certainly fans. I remember when she came back. Uh, he 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 was like front of the queue to go and watch. And they all hung um, out with who's that dancer? Lindsay Kemp. She he was big um, with Kate Bush as well. You know so. It's a, I think also because you know we were quite theatrical in our way, and that's something that I think that, that we've appreciated about Bowie, and that's right there in Kate Bush, you know, um, as well. Anyway, let's move on. We we've got a lot to get through. Yes, we still have a few. Next one's going to be, uh, yeah, an important singer songwriter didn't have a, a massively long career, but she had an incredibly big album in the 80s um, and she's a classic singer-songwriter the reason I'm including her is because she was a black woman um, and a voice that came out and kind of almost railroaded any sensibilities uh, in South Africa around kind of like who who had a voice because this Ooh. just this album by Tracy Chapman just Tracy. Took, took over the world um, and you know you had so if if my songs are you know a great song, Mr. Bojangles, a great songwriter, Carol King, a great sound, James Taylor. This is a great message, and I think um, yeah, well, we can talk about it afterwards. It's talking about a revolution. Don't you know? Talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper while they're standing in the welfare lines crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation wasting time in the unemployment lines sitting around waiting for don't you know talking about a revolution sounds just poor people gonna rise up and get their share poor people gonna rise up and take what's there don't you know you better run 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 And finally the table 
So yeah, finally the tables are starting to turn. It's um, it's a simple song. It's a simple kind of singer-songwriter um, execution. There are a bunch of this. Fast Car was the big song off the Tracy album, uh, Tracy Chapman's album. Um, but it's it's in that same kind of vein of Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire or Times Are a Changing by Bob Dylan or even Ohio by uh, Neil Young or Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday, where singer-songwriters have this kind of ability to talk about a movement or you know yeah change a change in life well, what or society was, what was she um what was she singing about <laughs> like i mean what 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 what's the context of i'm so glad you played her because she's a great singer songwriter and an amazing voice again distinctive voice but what what's the context for that song it's more about small town america uh stand, standing up and like you know they're talking about um, what's she talking about? The um, standing at the welfare lines, um, sitting around waiting for a promotion. It's about working class America turning the tables. Um, is my reading of it? Yeah, I've never properly listened to the lyrics, which is shameful. It's one again. It's one of those songs that like I remember everyone sitting around just strumming on the guitar, just mainly because it was like easier to play than fast car. But it was yeah. like so ubiquitous that album and being thirteen and. Yeah, Tracy Chapman being this mysterious voice from elsewhere because it was about Black America and it was about you know who was she? You know, it, it was very it was very remote and distant from. Um, I mean, you might have had this quite a lot in South Africa, I guess. You know, hearing these 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 people from this distant elsewhere that were so different from where you were. That's what it felt like. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean, Fast Girls essentially about the same thing. It's about escaping. Yeah. escaping your humdrum life and in, in in some ways you could equate what tracy chapman's singing about here to morrissey in, in, yeah no no i guess life. you could yeah um how, how was she she was obviously like massive globally um with that album what i'm kind of intrigued to know how it was received in south africa like what was the did it did it was it kind of within a canon of sort of protest, sort of political songs that people were listening to, maybe no, as like a, black artists or not? As I recall, when it came out, it was uh, it, it got mainstream airplay, and that's a surprising right. thing. It's uh, a voice of a black woman, but I think it was almost kind of pitched as just American fodder, like Bruce Springsteen. Um, wow, amazing! It, it, there was there was this weird. Uh, there was this weird time where black success was allowed if it didn't come from inside South Africa, you know. Yeah. Like people like Eddie Murphy uh, would were, were, you know, accepted as screen stars or Tracy Chapman as as music stars, but uh, you wouldn't be allowed to, you know, have African, uh, black African business people or celebrities or television presenters or anything. There was a, a weird, a weird time. Yeah, fascinating. Cool. I'm really glad you played that. You also, that was a surprise. I don't think you'd mentioned that in our earlier discussion unless I'd missed it. So nice to have a full on surprise. Uh, where are we at now? Is it me? Yes. Um, okay. So we must be, this is my more contemporary uh, period hmm. that we're going into now. Um, so I wanted to play a song by Ezra Furman because that is somebody who I, well, you know, discovered in the last few years because he's only really been around. I mean, he's been making albums since you know, maybe the early 2010s. Uh, a friend of mine in Sheffield who I 
got to know quite early on after moving here in 2013, said, do you want to come and see this guy called Ezra Furman? And that was in about, yeah, probably 2014. And um, I hadn't really heard of him. And I went to see him at a small venue in Sheffield. And it was great. I mean, he's, you know, just, you could tell he was just kind of possessed uh, by his music when playing on stage. And um, I got hold of his albums. And shortly after that, he released an album called Perpetual Motion People, which I just really got into. Again, it's one of these albums that got under my skin. I listened to it loads. Uh, I've, you know, listened to his three, I think, subsequent albums or two albums in an LP. And um, he's extremely talented, a very troubled, like I'm, I'm calling him he, he's, uh, he's sort of now identifies sort of as transgender, I think, but as far as I am aware, also accepts any pronoun you might want to throw. Um, so you can call him he. Uh, and yeah, he wasn't even identifying as transgender, I think, at the time I saw him play. But this song, the reason I chose this song is because it's a very simple, very short song uh, about being in a terrible place, but turning that into somehow a, an uplifting melody. Um, and so even though I don't think it's necessarily his best song, there's something about it that captures so much about you know, being in that place and seeking to just use music as a, as a way to make it better. I'm sick of this record already Let's rack all the preconceived notions we bring to it Check all the baggage or better yet burn it And start all over again Let's start with your life as you know it Way back in our mother's wombs folded like notebooks We had no idea of all the tote bags and meat hooks Waiting out in the world One September in Boston I lost the will to live I was just like an astronaut cut from the ship and Floating and waiting to die I was sick of my heart and never life Yeah, I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's just kind of short and to the point and 
Um, yeah, I mean, I recommend the album uh, and and both subsequent albums actually. Um, but it just, yeah, it just captures for me a lot about how I don't know. I mean, I think it's a thing that so many artists obviously go through. Um, he obviously in his own particular way. But, you know, there's lines in there about wanting to die, obviously, and about having had enough. But then he's also saying, you know, just because this is awful, do what you've got to do. He has that line, lose your way completely, but stay alive. And then he starts going, diddy bum the lang lang. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's not a depressing song, right? It's not a sad song, but it's about wanting to die. So I think that's quite interesting in itself. And also the juxtaposition of different types of vocals. So yeah. The- there's that kind of quite harsh, raspy lead sound, but then those beautiful doo wop kind of backing yeah, vocals. That, little... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's so, um, but yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it's also just because I wanted to play a track by him. And I, could, I could have chosen different tracks that would have had a completely different discussion around them. Um, but he also, has, as I think you know, he, did, he ended up providing the soundtrack to Sex Education, the smash hit series on Netflix, uh, which is interesting because I can see it's the perfect choice and partly because he actually has such a diverse range of songs from really quirky pop stuff to like raging punk like anger to beautiful ballads um so yeah I recommend checking some of his work out and I'd love to go see him again but I hasn't I haven't noticed an opportunity and of course now we can't see anyone live so yes uh you've given me two gifts then Kate Bush and yeah. Ezra Furman. I, I know um, from uh, Sexy Education, is it Do It So Well or So Well, So Well? Did you just I, say Sexy Education? Not it's, Sexy Education. <laughs> it just sounded like you say, I know from Sexy Education. Maybe it's just I, I know from that Sexy Education show. <laughs> Not I Love You So Bad. No. I Love You So Bad. That's the one yeah, yeah. that I remember That's from a, that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is quite an upbeat little number. Yeah, yeah. And there's loads of great upbeat Ezra Furman songs. So, you yeah. know. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do a few things that for a few artists that I'd kind of got into more recently. I'm going to do a last minute change around in my next choice uh, because I think you've brought things back into the contemporary world. No need uh, to. <laughs> and I was going to go with Cat Stevens, but I feel like after after kind of you've taken us to Kate Bush and I've gone back to Tracy Chapman, it feels like a, a backward step. So. <laughs> I'm going to change my mind and go with something from my longer list. Um, This is Taylor Swift with a song called Safe and Sound. Now, I'm not actually sure if this passes the test. I don't know if she wrote it all um, or if uh, songwriters involved. But I I think she's a contemporary artist I have a lot of respect for because she can really sing. Um, And this is a slight cheat because it also involves someone who I've come to really adore. Um, and it's the producer T-Bone Burnett. Oh, yeah. And T-Bone Burnett records this song from the Hunger Games soundtrack called Safe and Sound, which is a typical singer-songwriter-style song. So I'll play it. Go when all those shadows almost kill. 
so you get the picture. Um, I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> I feel entirely cool playing that song. Um, <laughs> I think she is very respected as a songwriter, singer, and you know she's written an incredible number of hits. I think she co co-wrote that song, but that's. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose it doesn't go strictly speaking into the singer-songwriter kind of canon, um, but I, hopefully it hints at um, a future episode I'd like to do around country music because that's something I, I, I never really had a great deal of respect for and um, I've, I've become a big fan of it partially for some of the reasons I mentioned tonight around the purity of playing that you get around slide guitar, singing, um, those circular, beautiful kind of songwriting styles, whether it's the, the guitar that has a, a lovely circular um, mm. pattern like this one does and, and a few of the others we had, or um, or just even lyrics that, that tell a story over, over a narrative arc. I just think... Um, yeah, I've I've come to like country music like a, a warm blanket, and T Bone Burnett is a through line through some of the great country music, and uh, he produced that. And some of what I really like about this, not so much Taylor Swift per se, but also just the the wonderful kind of atmospherics that surround the song. Um, yeah, yeah, it's obviously atmospherics is the word. Um, I, I welcome a country episode because I I know so little about country. I feel like country is this massive, literally bottomless well waiting to be, you know, to dip one's toe into that that will never end because it's mm. it's extraordinary how many of these artists there are in America who are incredibly successful, who many of us over here have never even heard of. And um, yeah, I'm I'm up for that. So is T Burnett? Is T Burn Burnett? Is he that guy? He did like the Coen Brothers film yeah. soundtrack uh i remember how big that was as well those songs from my brother where art thou um it's that guy right he same guy so he's he's got uh he's got a kind of uh, a pedigree as a musician i think he so this is without me doing any research so it's off the top of my head i think he was a musician with bob dylan's band uh yeah he, he's got got his own country music stuff his own writing is hit and miss but it's as a producer where he really shines. So, um, and, but then he's also done um, music soundtracks for TV shows and movies. So yeah. I think T Bone Burnett actually he may have done also the Big Lebowski soundtrack. I think he did. Oh, yeah. uh, there was that uh, True Detective series. I don't know if you saw that brilliant soundtrack. I don't um, think I did. Cool. But More to discover. More gifts. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Come um, on then. You're the last one tonight. Take us where you will. Okay, so it's another sort of a fairly abrupt shift of gear. And again, I don't know whether this is... Uh, I was thinking, you know, is this person really someone we would call a singer-songwriter? Partly because she uh, has an and the in her name to suggest that she's got a band behind her. But um, also it's, it's, it's pop music and it's not someone sitting with a guitar or piano. So this is Christine and the Queens. And... Um, I, I, as far as I can tell, Christine in the Queens really is just uh, Christine. Uh, she's not even called <laughs> Christine, is she? She's called um, Chris, but she's also called something or other, Letizia or something. Is she? Anyway. Um, she's French. She's French. And I, I, there was a big fuss about her first album, and I listened to it, and I was like, mm, yeah, whatever. I wasn't that into it. But then the second album, is it the second one anyway? The one called Chris that came out about two years ago. 
um, I got really quite into that album for a while, but particularly certain tracks on it. And she's obviously, so as well as being um, a singer-songwriter, it's a sort of singer-songwriter-producer. So a lot of this is about the sound. And I guess that's another whole genre, right, which uh, we've touched on, but where people get really very involved with the production. And this is a, a pop star, really, who isn't singing the most obviously instantly melodic pop songs some of the time, including in this one. But there's something about the groove and the and the bass and the drums. This song proceeds with almost no melody uh, for much of the song. She's on like two notes, mm. but um, uh, I, I just love it. I couldn't, I could not get enough of this song for a while, and I think it's something I wouldn't, you know, be able to not dance to if it came on in a, you know, in a nightclub or something. A certain. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Do you not know it? Anyway, I, th- I think you probably have to listen to it more than once to really get it. It was a single. But what I like about it, I'll just say this and I'll shut up, is that it stays on these two notes. And then after the second chorus, such as it is, she goes up to this new section. And there's something about the power of that kind of melodic restraint uh, and then going to uh, a sort of soaring kind of melody later that, that is very powerful. So, yeah, stick it on.
I think um, I think it's yeah. Listening to it and thinking about it in this way, it's 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 like production, the bass, and the, just the restraint that I really love about that song. I, do you know what I mean? Yes, I completely do, and I can also understand why on a few listens I could get really into this. And it's I not a also I, 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 I was smiling because I love the image of you hearing this and wanting to get up to dance, but lots of other people hearing uh, a song that they're not familiar with and some dark lyrics and going like, yeah. what the fuck is he <laughs> dancing I don't know, I, I could totally dance that song. I think it's just the beat. And she also does a lot of stuff on that album where she's kind of channeling Michael Jackson. Like, I partly, mm. it's partly a vicarious kind of, you're not really allowed to enjoy Michael Jackson anymore, but there's some little bits in that song as well. Like, there's a little backing vocal that just goes, a, a backing vocal that goes, um, Ah, which is straight off some Michael Jackson track. And I know that they, they, they get in your head and you're like, oh, it's familiar, but I don't know what track it is. Um, anyway, yeah. I, I, she bears repeated listening. And apparently she's incredible live as well. Do you find... Um, I, I got this when I was listening to LaRue and uh, even another great song, Hot Chip, uh, Boy From School. Ooh. Um, oh, that's great! Where, where in electronic music, you can kind of pare things down a bit in a yeah. way, and and so it made me jealous of, of of that type of music. When you're in a band and it's a bit messy and um, all over the totally. place, there's, there's something about the precision and the simplicity of electronic music that can just oh, it's lovely. Totally, where you just you don't need to have like a zillion tracks. You know, that song mm. it just has that bass going. And then occasionally it's got a little pad or a little keyboard just kind of going, and you just need to change one note in that chord, and it suddenly like just shifts the mood. And then there's like nothing else, just space. And uh, that's amazing to be able to do that. I, I know what you mean about being jealous of it. So we've got had five songs each. No, no, no. We've done five floopers each. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. A, these episodes have been expanding and expanding time-wise. <laughs> Probably the longest yet. But I have received very few emails of complaint. Uh, so, Even from Oman? Was even it Oman? From, yeah, we do need to tell this. Uh, currently, this podcast is doing very well in the UK. OK in Germany and the USA. We have a stronghold in Oman. Um, and uh, yes, but the rest of the Middle East is lagging behind so buck okay. your ideas up in K qatar well i have emirates mentioned lebanon this episode as well uh so maybe that will somehow <laughs> get onto the radar of, of people in, in lebanon um yeah okay so we have to play a song well we don't have to but tradition dictates that we now play a song of our own and the one we've chosen is a song so you're the singer songwriter but if there is someone who can sit down and do a, a fully constructed song from start to finish um, and uh, just it can be played on its own, it's you. And I remember you playing this song on your own because when we were a band, you, you I think, I may have, did we come and see you play this at Yulu or a university college gig yeah. somewhere? That's really interesting. I don't know where it was. I did a gig and I, well, it wasn't a gig, but I played two songs, maybe as part of an open mm. mic. I played this song and a song called Woman Made of Stone. This version of it is you and I at uh, 
um, my shared house in South London near yes. Elephantstone Castle. You brought your eight track round, and we we spent a couple of hours recording a few songs acoustically. Baytree Muse, um, yes, yeah, yeah, that's what we do. I haven't heard this for years. Um, let's hear it. It's called "The Devil Moving In." Please forgive these worn-out words that I must speak Been a whole lot of friction, silence and repetition for a long, long time Internal bruising, winning and losing for a long, long Maybe living day by day will never bring us peace She said there's change in the air But she inhaled it right there I never had a chance to taste We cannot do as we choose We've been toyed, we've been used But it will not go Blood will thicken with every stone we crack. When there's no recognition, you wanna take it back, take it all back. But somehow, redemption is where all the stories begin. We've been guilt tripped to our knees to stop the devil. Please forgive this burnout logic that guides my life You can go to bed one evening, kicking and screaming And then wake up and throw the dice Through it all there's a clarion call, but every calling You want to take it back and take it all back But somehow, redemption is where all the stories begin We've been pushed down to our knees to stop the devil Oh, yeah, I know. 
getting a bit carried away with the reverb on the guitar there <laughs> <laughs> i think it's lovely nice to hear that yeah it's interesting the way uh it turns into my vocal at the very end it's kind of a we we did a swap over yeah we so at the over. point at which you, we do that uh, rising thing interesting if listeners will be able to discern between your vocals and i like Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder. And... <laughs> Not quite. You've got a really nice vocal from you there, actually. Um, well, I, I feel guilty. Too much in our life. No, no, we haven't listened to it much, um, either together or, yeah. or, you know, after at the time. But I feel guilty because um, in the spirit of trying to get a good vocal, I grammatically got a couple of things wrong I, I always feel guilty when I listen to we've been toyed we've been used because I think <laughs> I, I, you were like no it's we've been toyed with and uh, used and, uh, and it used. doesn't matter I and, now quite like and, it and, and the quirk at, of at the, the studio throw of a dice I'm not sure if the throw of a dice works well that's my thought I think I wrote that line that way so uh, you know there we are we're equally <laughs> um <laughs> but the devil of moving in is, is it about uh it's a battle about not giving up on your dreams, isn't it? Is, is that what, I what it's about? It's terrible, but I don't really... I, I don't mean this in the kind of sense of, like I was saying earlier, where you could kind of write a song and be like, it's mood and it's vibe and it means, you know, the, the words meant something, but I don't know what it's about. I think I did know what that song was about, but I've just forgotten. Or I've just forgotten mm. what really prompted that. Um, yeah, I... Well, if you've forgotten, you I'm going to I'm, I'm going to kind of then project <laughs> onto you what I yeah. think it's about, which is uh, when you're trying to do something great, uh, you're you're trying at every turn to stop the devil moving in, which is uh, giving up on that greatness, or giving up on those dreams, or giving up on the the, the thing that you want to do. Um, that was my interpretation of it. That's it. That's it. That's what it's about. Okay, good. basically, that rings a bell. <laughs> Um, um, I also have a very strong memory of you having to kind of just punch in the line riddled with sin. <laughs> I'm um, remembering that as well. Uh, riddled with sin. Yeah, on the riddled with sin, uh, and you're just doing it multiple times, and it seemed yeah. it sounded quite absurd. I think I was um, doing the backing vocal that goes riddled with sin. Yeah. Well, listeners, thank you for. Uh, tolerating a longer than normal episode ending with us being riddled with sin that was singer songwriters um yes. thank you and yeah i mean like please continue listening to us indulge ourselves and you in gifts singer songwriters yeah. there's more to come and whatever country you might be in jump in a taxi or a car or a bus take a copy of this podcast <laughs> by cassette if necessary, to a neighbouring country so that we can expand the number of countries on our map. Yes, particularly, and if you go on a bus, remember you're one of the cool guys. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, night, just night. like in Jack Kerouac. Good night. Boo.